What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vita Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode 150, yes, 150, to celebrate this milestone episode, I scoured the globe to find someone fitting and someone who doesn't do interviews often, but has had a huge impact on society. And I'm speaking with Simon Holmes, a court. Simon has stood at the intersection of community, climate action, and politics since May 2007, when he began chairing the community cooperative that set out to build Australia's first community-owned wind farm. 15 years later, to the month and the May 2022 national federal election, one of this former Silicon Valley.com engineer startups, Climate 200, harnessed community, climate awareness and politics to play a major role in shaking up Australia's tired old political order. Simon is an energy analyst, clean tech investor, philanthropist and a respected commentator on the economic, political and engineering aspects of the energy transition. This conversation is truly wide-ranging and covers a lot of ground. We discuss Simon's upbringing in Perth, Australia with three siblings, his parents' influence, including his father's Southern African heritage. Simon reflects on his boarding school experience in Geelong near Melbourne and how that was physically and emotionally character building. Hear about his aspirations at age 18, which included setting up a computer parts company with a friend to upgrade memory to people's computers. Yes, that was a thing back then. Simon studying law, but then loving the student organization ISEC and going down a different path. I also was involved with ISEC during my university studies and couldn't speak higher of the training it gave me. Particular aspects of this conversation that stood out to me include Simon and his wife leaving the US on September 10th, 2001 with their first child and moving back to Australia and choosing to live in Melbourne. Simon is particularly cautious after his boarding school scars. Simon's discovery of renewable energy during his 14 years scaling a company called Observant, which is building remote monitoring technical solutions and precision water management for farmers. How leadership of the Hepburn Community Farm Project gave Simon exposure to everything from capital raising to the media, to politics, to the engineering side, and on the ground engagement. The fascinating story of the Kids of Nehru project, the Sydney Opera House, and a horse race, and Simon learning the power of Twitter through all this. Simon's learning of clarity of communication and presenting information in a way that makes people engaged and willing to listen and not switch off. I did tell you we covered a lot of ground, Two concepts that I haven't stopped thinking about since this conversation include one, the trim tab from Buckminster Fuller. Listen in to hear this concept. Small things like a trim tab can drive large-scale change. And two, the Henry David Thoreau quote, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root. So, be a trim tab and a root striker. Thank you for your support of our 150 episodes to date. This without a doubt has been the most impactful and enjoyable work I've done in my life. And I'm very excited for what's ahead. As always, all my details are in the show notes and I'd love hearing from you. So with that, it's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Simon Holmes Accord, welcome to the show. Thanks, Vidit. Great to be on your podcast. I'm very grateful that you've agreed to do this. I know you don't do many of these, so I will do my best to to show your story in totality. Why don't we start with our fun facts? Is where were you born and where do you live now? 
So I was born in Middle Swan in Western Australia. So that's a northern area of, of Perth. Uh, my parents used to live in the hills uh, behind Perth before I, before I was born. And they had all of their children at the, all four of us were born at the Swan District Hospital. And you're now in Melbourne, is that right? And I now live in Melbourne. I've lived in Melbourne since 2001. So yeah, grew up in Perth, spent some time in in the US, but now live in Australia. Mm. And from a in work Melbourne. perspective, what was your first job and how would you describe your work now? Well, I mean, we've all got jobs we did when we were growing, <laughs> growing up. I, I was... I was quite a geek as a kid and I always wanted to buy, there was always some piece of computer equipment that I wanted to buy and I did that through all sorts of, of small jobs. One, one, I remember one holiday packing fish hooks for a, a company that sold fishing equipment and, and I painted, painted fences at a farm for, for another, at another holiday. Lots of odd jobs like that. The, the most fun of those was I, I, I was a Microsoft mouse at a trade show uh, right. back when Microsoft my, mice were a new thing. But no, my first, my first real job out of college was as a software engineer. I worked for Netscape, the, the browser company. You have to be of a certain age to remember Netscape, but it was, it was the first mass market browser. And that was my, my first job after I graduated from college. Uh, and that was Mark Andreessen's, Mark Andreessen's company, Yes, right? yeah. yes, it was. Yeah, it was mm. the first dot-com company to, I, to IPO. It made made a lot of people rich. I got, I got there as employee number 2681 right. in, in uh, mid, mid-1997. And, yeah, in early 1998, they had the first round of, of layoffs and I was I was given a, an option of a very boring job within the new Netscape, or to take a severance package, and and I did that, and spent another four years in in the Bay Area, in in the you know, Silicon Valley Bay Area, and it was it was a fantastic experience. Oh, fascinating! Thank you for sharing that. I mean, this podcast came out of redundancy. I was made redundant, and then this podcast started out of that. So we've got that in in common in some ways with adversity. And how would you describe your work now? Because I think you do a, a number of different roles. How do you describe them? I wear quite a few hats. I'd say the majority of my time is is definitely with Climate Two Hundred, the crowdsource campaign to help help pro. Uh, pro-climate independence get into parliaments around around the country. That's that's the majority of what I do. But I'm also I have an active role as with with the Smart Energy Council, I'm the director of the uh, Smart Energy Council, which is a peak body for solar storage and other decarbonisation technologies. Um, an organisation called the Superpower Institute, which is building the the, the narrative, but also the evidence base and the policy recommendations to help Australia become a winner out of the global decarbonisation that's going on this this century. And also on the board of a group called the Australian Environmental Grant Makers Network, which is really a, a community of philanthropists who are trying to increase the amount of philanthropy directed at the at the environment and to increase the quality of that philanthropic input. Um, so trying to make philanthropy more effective in the environment in Australia. Um, so four very different organisations with um, great, great people on them. That that takes a lot of my time. That's so cool. And I do want to come back to time management and how you balance all these things and, and context switch because that's something I struggle with and, and maybe you can give us some tips <laughs> later <laughs> in the conversation. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> and Simon, as you know, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer is there a high flyer in your life who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve well we're reimagining a high flyer i, I think traditionally we've thought of high flyers as people who we who are very visible but there but but if if i'm reimagining the way i think you're you're reimagining it as some as someone who has a very big impact and here we're we're talking about big impact someone with big impact who may not have received recognition. She'll hate me for singling her out, but I, I'll nominate Anne Kapling 
some people in the independence movement have, have heard of Anne. Anne was the campaign manager for Monique Ryan's campaign. She, she was a, 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 a politics academic and a successful university ad, ad, ad administrator, but in her retirement, she started getting involved in uh, local, um, uh, I guess, sort of political advocacy in, in Kuyong, where I, where I live. And it was Anne who really drove the formation of, of, of the campaign to find an independent in Kuyong. And you know, in early October 2020, it was just it was just Anne. And within you know, a month, it was about 30 people. And a month and a half after that, it was 600 people in in the wow. Hawthorne Town Hall who were holding up banners welcoming Monique Ryan as the candidate. And she came home to you know, Monique came home to a thumping win at the 2022 election. But Anne was a fantastic leader of what ended up being a massive community campaign and she is very generous she did the whole thing as a volunteer and is and is very generous with her time helping other communities understand what it takes in order to build a successful political campaign so she's a brilliant leader and a brilliant strategist oh definitely a high flag go go Anne, and then maybe someone <laughs> to feature on our show in the future I, I want to wind back the clock, Simon, and, and talk about your sunrise, your your childhood, and I'm grateful that you've agreed to share some parts of it because it is it is very private, and I appreciate that. Talk about growing up in in Perth. What are your memories of the environment you grew up in? And I love I love Perth. It has a very warm place in in my heart as a beautiful, beautiful, relaxed in, in environment. You know, the the beaches are phenomenal, the rivers phenomenal, the weather. Is amazing though. Though I hear you know it's a string of forty degree days there at the moment. It's maybe becoming a less easy place to live in as 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 our, as our planet warms. But we had a, had a wonderful childhood in in Perth. We we lived in the city, but we have my, my parents built um, developed a, a wonderful farm about an hour south of Perth, where we spent every weekend. Um, and my mum was obsessed with planting trees and planted tens of thousands of trees on on the property and it's and you know, watching that property develop from a pretty sandy plain to a, a tree lined oasis over, over my childhood was was a, a great pleasure my parents were very very busy when 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 i was young my father's career took off in the late 70s and by uh by about 1979 my parents were on the road traveling a lot um and we in, in i think it was 1980 my my older two siblings went off to boarding school and in 84 i followed in 85 my my younger brother did so i think it was yeah in 85 all four of us were at boarding school in geelong mm. we went to geelong grammar it was it was quite it was quite rare then for people to be to fly interstate there were a few people from sydney but it was it was pretty crazy that we were flying across the nullarbor to go to school that meant you, you went across at the beginning of the beginning of term and just came back for the long holidays not even the midterms it was too far for that yeah crossing crossed the nullarbor way too many times before um before i was 18. uh a lot a long way from home yeah, you know, I wrote wrote a bit about my experience there last year. That it was a very it was a very cold place, both both physically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty pretty tough environment. It, certainly, character building. Certainly, mm-hmm. some of the uh, some of the resilience uh, that I had to develop there has has definitely been of 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 assistance through through life, but. But other bits leave scars on you. Yeah, it was it was it was a tough place. I think we I think we all have that right. We all have that. There's chips. Uh, there's a great line that someone in the US said: "Chips on shoulders put chips in pockets." And it, <laughs> I'm, I'm a big believer in that. And I think it's funny you mentioned Geelong Grammar. I was a tennis coach at Caulfield Grammar back in 2013. I didn't go to Caulfield, but I was a tennis coach there for their second team. And I used to go with the with the team to Geelong Grammar, and I was blown away by the tennis courts and and just the competitive spirit they had 
it was the facilities was, are, are the facilities yeah. are amazing but it was yeah it was probably the right thing you know parents on the road a lot probably the right yeah. thing for us to, to go to boarding school and it certainly helped shape i think all of all of us for who we are yeah and and southern african heritage is that right yeah my father was his family was from zimbabwe or rhodesia as my grandmother called it to her right to her dying days from my father's family was from a very very small town that almost no one's ever heard of called guello um, and I, I found just by complete coincidence it's the same town that david pocock's from the senator right uh, yes in, in the act uh, a very small town and he it, it was it was very colonial when when my father was growing up you the the women went down to down to Johannesburg to you know down to South Africa to have their babies and if you wow. could you sent your kids to, to boarding school in South Africa so he had i guess for my father sending us across the country across australia was nothing when he had to when he went internationally when to go to boarding school but he he left he left South Africa when he was 19 he, he enrolled in university of cape town and within a very small amount of time realized that he he said yeah she said he he said that at that time it was 1956 that he didn't see a future for the white man in south southern africa and he he came he came and checked out the 1956 olympics and continued on to new zealand where he settled for a number of years to do a, an agricultural degree and eventually ended up in perth where he studied a law degree and he met my mother when they were both both at university of western australia and they were both on the student guild together fantastic and i and i must say i love your recollection of the years you know the years to the to the number <laughs> like which is which is incredible so that's that's great and so i love asking like what would you have heroes growing up did you were you into you, like i think you've got very eclectic tastes from what i understand did you have any heroes or any posters on the wall any whether it was sport or movie stars or arts that you're like oh they, they look i've never i i've i've tried many times but i've never i've never managed to get into sport as a as to, to sports people i've enjoyed participating in sport but i i just never managed to master any passion for a team or a particular player other than when you when when you see a a grand final or you see you know the absolute peak of competition of something or, or the olympics where every sport is fun to watch but as far as actually following any individual no uh music was was escapism for me at Geelong grammar and 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 there were a few of us who you you'd, you'd try really hard to find the music that no one else was listening to and and yeah i i got into yeah i i got deeply into pink floyd and and knew all about all of the you know, all of the band members and their histories and dark secrets and all the rest but yeah late, i mean later on i i i mean one one of my heroes that maybe it was a bit you know it was in, in my early 20s that i gravitated to or my interest did was buckminster fuller who was a mid 20th century engineer a little bit eccentric but he he was he came up with some of the first he was one of the first people to describe circular uh, circular economy that we could get to a point where we dramatically reduce our production of primary materials because we get so good at both recycling and using less and less material with each generation of product that we could get to a point where we reuse rather rather than treat resources as consumables and he had some really interesting ideas on 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 mass housing on mass production of cars and of housing so he, yeah he was a really 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 interesting guy he gave us the the geodesic dome that's that's probably the the thing that most people recognize but he also gave me the concept of a trim tab which which has been quite i i, I think i think about very often and can i can i explain please yes please tab? please he he talked about the the example he gave was the queen mary which was the greatest passenger liner of of his era 
bigger than the Titanic. The uh, and I and uh, I it was you know, a quarter of a mile long or half a mile long. It was all imperial measurements when when he was talking about it. And at the end of it, there's like a twelve foot long rudder. And when the ship is going powering full steam ahead through the through the ocean, the water is rushing past that rudder, and the forces stopping that rudder from turning are massive. If you imagine that wall of water on either side of the rudder, it's almost impossible to move that 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 rudder against the, the force of that water. But at the very edge of the rudder, there's a little thing called a trim tab. And when that turns, it's maybe only six inches long, when that turns, it creates a little low pressure eddy on one side of the rudder, which makes it really easy to turn the rudder around. And he saw himself as the trim tab, the little guy at the end that when he turned, he could get something bigger to turn. And when that thing turned, gradually the whole ship of state, as he called it, would turn around. Mm-hmm. So he said he, he tried to always be in the right place at the right time, applying just the right amount of force, not too much, but strategically in the right place in order to move the thing that can then move, that can then change the world. And it's, I mean, it's, it, it's a great aspiration, I think, to try to be a, a trim tab. His, his epitaph, if you go visit Buckminster Fuller's gravestone, it just, it just says, you know, it says on, a, on his gravestone, call me trim tab. I like to think about how, you know, how, how to apply the right amount of pressure, just the right amount, not too much, in the right place at the right time to have as big effect as possible. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. And I could learn a thing or two from that of, of subtly applying the right influence and, and pressure. Right? I think we all can get caught up in that sometimes and then push too hard and and not get there. But I, it sounds like you've had a lot of influences in, in a short period growing up. And I, as you've noticed in the other episodes, I love asking about 18 because I feel like that's a moment in time. We've got some understanding of self and the world. Were there any aspirations? Were there anything that you were like, this is what life's going to look like or this is what fulfillment's going to be, particularly because you've had all these influences where you've left a city, the parents have influenced you and these people you followed. Yeah, how do you look back when you're 18? Yeah, I came back to Perth after after boarding school. I lived at home. I had a lot of a, a lot of things going on. I with with a friend, we ran a a bulletin board system. So before the internet, there were people would set up computers where you could dial in from your home computer with a modem, dial in and chat to people, send messages, and download files and play online games. So there was a there were mini internets, and then they, these were connected to each other. I got into bulletin board world when I think I was about eleven when I first first logged on onto one, and was running one by the time I was by the by the time I was seventeen with 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 a friend out out of my home. You know, my parents wondered why I needed four phone lines, <laughs> <laughs> but they, we had subscribers and they were paying the way of, of of this of this system. And every time we could afford it, we'd buy a new modem or a new hard drive. I started up a, a, a computer parts company with with my friend where we would people would pay us to come to their office and upgrade the memory in their in their computers so we'd turn up on bikes or public transport and upgrade memory in people's computers i was at, I was, I was in, enrolled in in arts at university of western australia you had to do arts for a year before you could apply for law and i'm pretty i was pretty sure i wanted to do law at that stage so i was doing that and i got involved in a funny name student organization called ISEC, which I believe you were in too. Mm, I was. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, not many people have heard of it, but those who have been in it, it can be quite life, life-changing. It's uh, an international association nominally of students in economics and commerce. I was, mm. I was in neither, but I had a lot of friends who were, who were in ISEC and convinced me to come in. And it, yeah, it's how do I describe what it does? Uh, a big, one of the big things it does is organises traineeships, internships across the exchange of internships across countries, but it also, it runs conferences, it, it, it trains students become, you know, rise up through the organisation and become trainers of how to run the organisation, how to run conferences, how to run the exchange program, 
and imparting sort of practical business skills and professional skills. Yeah, and I got really, really involved in that organisation to the at the expense of every, of everything else. I did I did briefly start a law degree, but I didn't make it even to half to the halfway point of the year. I was I, I by by that point I was the West Australian regional manager of, of ISEC, and not long after was was elected to the national committee. So I went to live in Sydney for a year. Yeah, I, I do. I have been to that National Sydney office, and it's uh, <laughs> it brings back memories. So absolutely, I think that's that's really interesting to learn that. So tell me, how does how does one go from that? And then you went to the US after that, right? And you were an engineer. First, I went right? to Malaysia. First, I went to Malaysia after I finished okay. with with ISEC's National Committee. Uh, I, I was not quite sure what I wanted to do. I wasn't ready to study to go back and study then. And an opportunity came up. My my family had construction company interest in in Malaysia and it well throughout Southeast Asia really and it it, it was modernizing its communication systems and, I, and at ISEC I had brought that organization onto email for the first time I sort of leveraged my bulletin board skills um, the internet was new it was only uh, and this is this is back in 1992 and three. It was only just opening up to non-academic use, so they were allowing student organisations to use it. And then by the time I went to Malaysia, they were opening up the internet for commercial use. So I I helped this organisation network their computers, get email working, and um, and, and working helping helping engineers work in a in a modern environment where they could send files. Yeah, they they were amazed they could send files to each other by through email rather than previously they'd just done everything with faxes or putting a floppy disk in a mailing envelope and FedExing it across across Asia. So I worked I lived in Kota Kinabalu over in Borneo for for a couple of months and then rounded out the year in in Kuala Lumpur. And on a bit of a whim I, I applied for college in the US. Both my brothers had been to college in the US and really enjoyed it. I applied for a, a different one from what that they'd um, that, that they had gone to. I applied for Dartmouth College, which is quite quite small, not very well known, but excellent reputation amongst those who do know. And I got in. And so without ever having visited it, without knowing what I was really getting into, I, I turned up. I was about four years older than most of the rest of my peers there because I'd done this this detour through, through ISEC and working in Malaysia. And, and, and in America, the, the, the 18-year-olds are three years away from drinking age. Mm. I was 22 and way past drinking age. So there was a, there was a big maturity gap, but, but that, was, that was fine. I, I, yeah, met, met a lot of people who were still very close, close friends, got into rowing at college and a beautiful environment of... It's up in New Hampshire, not far from the Canadian border. Just one of the, one of the most stunning parts of the world. And I did a three-year undergraduate degree there. What I can sense in in the conversation so far, Simon, is this entrepreneurial spirit. Where you're you're quite bold. At least it sounds like you're quite bold in taking opportunities and just running after it and backing yourself. Is that is that a fair assumption? Oh, that's that. Yeah, that that's kind <laughs> kind of you. <laughs> yeah, look, I think I think one of the things. My my parents did help. Yeah, you know, one one of the great gifts that they gave me was to have the confidence to back yourself, to and to and to take some risks. Yeah, actually, when when I when I got to college, I, I was sick of computers. I'd been working with computers for for years, and mainly helping people get their printers up and going and email working. And mm-hmm. that's what I thought computers were all about. But then I turned up at this college where. Uh, they had such a heritage of computer science and I took one class. I, I was really interested at that stage in, in artificial intelligence but also got a double major with, with computer science and just happened to be at the graduating right when the dot-com period was, was taking off and went to uh, you know, interviewed with all, all the big companies like Oracle and Apple IBM all came to college to interview and Netscape. I really wanted to work for Apple. 
I interviewed with them and the person interviewing me said this was back in the early 90s when Apple, so mid, mid-90s when Apple was pretty sick as a company. And the friend I interviewed with said, my strong advice, don't come here. Go to, go to Netscape. All the cool guys from Apple have left and gone to Netscape. So I interviewed with them and got a, got a, got a job. But that was, it was a big, it was a big step. No one in my family had ever spent any time on the West Coast of the US, had ever had anything to do with technology. I didn't know anyone there. My, yeah, my wife was interested in San Francisco. She, she had a singing career. At, she was an opera singer, opera student at that point, and San Francisco has a good scene for that. So she was up for taking the leap as well. And we, we yeah, very much took a leap of faith and went across to, to Silicon Valley at a really exciting time. It's, it's interesting hearing your Apple story because if my homework serves me correct, you actually got shares of Apple when you were quite quite early on, right? When it was like $7 or $8 <laughs> a share. Is that is that right? Significantly less than that. No, was, okay, was, wow. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I made a... I have so you clearly preempted, you clearly, pre, you clearly <laughs> preempted their, their future, which which is where they're at now. And, and we talk about impact. I mean, look at the impact they've had on the world, right? Yeah. Quite, quite an amazing company. I, mean, I, I was an Apple fanboy from from the late eighties. In fact, yeah, this this year um, marks I think thirty five years since I've you know got my first Mac. And, and I think engineer to climate advocacy pathway. There's yourself. There's we talked earlier about Eitan Linko, who's been on the show, who's also come from an engineering foundation. Is 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 really interesting and I think it probably gives you a sense of thinking with clarity and frameworks to solve the world's biggest problems, right? Yeah, I, I have thought about that a bit about the, the, the engineering mindset. You first, first you really want to understand how something works and I, I, it drives me mad if I've got, you know, if there's something in my life that I don't know how, how, it, how it operates. I really need to stop research and, and, and understand how it works. And then when, and for the things that don't work is, you know, automatically drawn to, well, how do we fix it? What, what do we do? Mm. And I'd say, yeah, quite, quite a few things that I've approached that have been outside of classic computer engineering. I've approached with that engineering mindset of, of getting to first understanding how it works and then, and then try, you know, can't help thinking of how, how we, you know, what interventions might fix the thing that's broken. Yeah. And then if we, go, if we go back to your journey for a second, I believe you were in the US for about four or five years and then you were back to Australia in the early 2000s. Is that right? Yeah, we left, we left the US. It was a pretty auspicious day. We, we, we left on, the, on, on September 10, 2001. Oh, wow. Um, we, my wife, and Katrina and I, were, we'd had our first born child. The dot-com bubble had started to burst. There was the very weird... 2000 presidential election where you know the, the bush gore election where it all came mm-hmm. down to hanging chads you know, the, um, <laughs> you know semi punched out bits of paper and and florida and supreme court challenges about what what counted um and it felt like something had broken in the us we 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 were we absolutely loved the culture that we were in and really were we we're imagining we could spend 20 years in the US, but something something broke around that period for us. And partly it was having a young child and, and, and thinking, do we want do we want our son to grow up in this culture or 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 Australia? So we, we really felt the the urge to go back to Australia. We we're a bit gutless. We didn't we had a house then and we didn't we didn't sell it. We and we, we, we put our we put our items in storage rather than shipping them. I was thinking we'll just go back to Australia for a year and just just test it out. And we hopped on a plane just before midnight on September tenth, two thousand and one, and we arrived on September twelfth, as you do, you miss miss a day. Mm-hmm. So we arrived in in at Sydney Airport with obviously September eleven having happened in the in the meantime, and it just immediately felt like we had made the absolute right decision to get to get out of there. And, and very soon after, we were, we were on an outback property in Western Australia, and what felt like a million miles away from what was going on in the US, and it just felt so right to be to be back. And, and we haven't looked back. My wife's from Melbourne, 
we thought we'd give Melbourne a go. And it was, it, you know, I, I went, as, as we talked before, I went to boarding school in Geelong and didn't, didn't love the, the environment. So I, I never thought that I could live in Victoria, but I, I didn't really know Melbourne that well. Mm. I immediately fell in love with Melbourne and, and, and still, still absolutely love it. It's, you know, I, I recognise that I'm, I'm a bit of a blow-in, but 22 years later, I, 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 yeah, I'm still very, very happy that I call Melbourne home. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I grew up in Melbourne and lived there most of my life, so it's a beautiful, beautiful city. I'm, I'm curious then, Simon, like when you came back, back to your entrepreneurial spirit and, and backing yourself and, and having these influences, you could have done many things. I'm sure you had many options of your own. You had ideas. You could have started a tech company. How did you settle on on what the path next was when you came back to Australia? Well, well actually, the, the, the first thing I did do was was, was a really interesting mix. My, my, my family had cattle stations in Western Australia and Northern Territory. And one, and that they were, it was, it was at a stage when the mines were starting to um, employ everyone in, in Western Northern, you know, Western Australia, Northern Territory. Yeah. Every, everyone they could get their hands on was, was getting, was being employed and getting wonderful salaries with, Quite, you know, quite often quite cushy jobs in the mines and it was becoming really, really difficult to staff, to have a full complement of staff on these properties. And I was given the challenge, how do we, how do we monitor our, you know, we, we, normally, we, we normally send people in cars to drive around the property, go from, go from trough to trough, just checking that there's water in it, making sure that the pumps are going and the dams are full and the cattle have all the water they they need. We can't we can't hire people to do these jobs. So we we is there a way we can automate it? Is there a way we can we can check how much water you know check our infrastructure without actually being there? And so I had this sort of family need for a solution and this technical background of knowing how to build build solutions. And I spent about a year looking for technical solutions to this to this problem, and ended up ended up choosing to. Well, I found I found a, a, a small Perth company that had some really good ideas in this space, and I ended up joining them and eventually buying out their IP and developing it with a with another uh, Australian friend who had returned from Silicon Valley around about the same t- time. And we, we started a company that built remote monitoring solutions for agriculture so that farmers initially just in the, you know, the big rangelands pastoralists, but, but eventually we focused on irrigation farmers, but, uh, and, and precision water management, monitoring and management control of, of every bit of equipment on a farm that has anything to do with water, whether it's uh, me- measuring the height of dams or water in tanks or flow into troughs, putting putting chemical treatments into water supplies, starting starting pumps, weather stations. So I, I ran that company for, well, held that company for about about fourteen years. But in the middle, I discovered I discovered renewable energy, and. And and that really also, you know, that 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 was quite pivotal in setting me off and on the direction I am now. Mm, and, and you're referring to Observant, is that the company? That yeah, Observant's the water water management mm. company. Yep, mm. which we started around about 2002 and sold in 26 to end of 2016. Yeah, the com- company's um, market was moving to the US and and, and other territories. And needed to massively scale up. I didn't want to move the family back to to the US. So it became pretty clear that that, that, that yeah, a trade sale was going to be the most you know, the, the most suitable path forward for the company and and for me. Yeah, but along in, along that journey, we my, my wife and I had built a, a house on a on, on a farm in Dalesford mm-hmm. and in, in central Victoria, and it was off grid with. Um, uh, solar with big lead acid batteries, which was state of the art. You know that was that was what you used back then, and, and a diesel generator, and the system worked really really well all summer and most of 
spring and autumn, but in winter we didn't get much, we don't get much sun there, and so we ran we'd be running the diesel generator quite a bit. And I'd done some work on with the family properties on renewables. I learned a little bit about solar, but back in this is two thousand and four, solar was very expensive. It was still cheaper than putting power lines in to the property, so it was it was still made made sense financially. But it really bugged me that we needed to burn so much diesel during during winter. And I came across one day in town in in Dalesford, I came across a man, a Danish man, Pierre Bernard, who had set up a card table in the main street of Dalesford, and he was he was talking about about building building big wind turbines. I, I've been thinking about putting a small wind turbine on our our farm to help us during over winter. But he said, don't don't mess around with those small ones. Let's build one of these big wind turbines, which were very new at that stage. There were none within a three-hour drive of, of, of Dalesford. But, but he had done his homework and found that we are in a really windy area. He grew up in Denmark where most wind turbines were owned by, uh, by cooperatives or, or small towns. And, and he convinced me to sign up as, a, as an interested person in his community's wind farm idea. About a year later, I went along to a, a formation meeting where the town was coming together to decide, are we going to go ahead with this project or not? And it was decided to go ahead with it and incorporate the association or the, the, the cooperative. And so I went in as an interested observer and I accidentally came out as the chairman of this group, the <laughs> Community Wind Farm. Uh, and it was, it was a fantastic experience. I spent all up eight years on, on this organisation. I, I thought, it would, thought it would take a year to raise all the money and build a wind farm. It took us about five from when I got, when I got interested. So it was a, it was a long haul, but it was a very small organisation. So I got to I got exposure to every part of of a project like that. So the community engagement, the capital raising, the media, the politics, the engineering side, the commercials of building, environmental, the on the ground engagement with those who live near. Uh, it was it was it was a fantastic baptism of fire in renewable energy so i very rapidly learned a lot about renewable energy through that project and and especially the politics of renewable energy it sounds like the most wonderful precursor to what you did next and what you've done recently which which takes me to my next question is I actually reached out to a large number of your climate 200 team and and to our audience for some questions and a common question that came back is asked simon what inspired your work in philanthropy and how did you get the confidence to set up Climate 200 as something that you threw your efforts behind? Yeah, well, so, so with, with Hepburn Win, it, it really put me out into an uncomfortable territory. Like I, I'm, I'm an introvert and standing up in front of a town hall of people saying, join with me, you know, we need 2,000 people for this project, join with me. Initially, we thought we only needed to raise a few million dollars it ended up being we needed to raise 10 million dollars so it was by the time we were ready to build the project we were sitting on a a large pool of a large number of people's money you know 10 million dollars from 2000 people that's a huge responsibility i really wow. felt that that responsibility and we yeah, really put ourselves out there, our, our sort of reputations on the line that we were going to do. There was a great lighthouse for so many mm. other community energy projects around the country. Mm. So with, with that experience and, and, and knowing a lot more, a lot about renewables, I was doing a lot of advocacy and that, that meant understanding the politics, talking to politicians, trying to help them understand the 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 opportunities of, of this community ownership model spent a lot of time on that but along along the way i got i, I accidentally got caught up in the kids off Nauru refugee campaign and i, and I should say after after i after i sold observant one one saturday afternoon i, I remember my 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 wife was out on a, on a on a hiking trip. I was a bit bored, and I thought, you know what? I'll sign up for that Twitter thing and find out what everyone's, <laughs> you know, what, what, why everyone wastes so much time on it. I signed up for Twitter, and I was researching a lot about renewable energy in Australia, and I just started posting my observations of what I was learning. And every time I would see something that didn't seem quite right, I would research it and post a fact check, and. 
people really liked the content. I developed quite a strong following on on Twitter of people who were following my energy musings and corrections and provocations on on energy. I built up quite a Twitter following there. Um, and, and I remember, what, yeah, so that, that set, sets the context. I, I saw, one day I saw a campaign launched called Kids Off Nauru. The government had told us that there were no kids in detention and a bunch of advocates had determined actually there were more than 200 sitting, in, sitting on Nauru in detention. The government twisted the definition of detention, so that was not detention but, but was it offshore processing. And so they, they were in detention. They were not free to leave. And this camp, very, very clever campaign said, well, we, um, they, they'd worked out that Australia was all over the place on, on what they thought about offshore detention, but nobody thought that detaining children was a good idea. And they ran a campaign to try to raise the profile of this issue. And the day I learned about it was the same day that Scott Morrison had in, endorsed using the Sydney Opera House to advertise a horse race. It was quite controversial at the time that the Alan Jones, the radio shock jock, had had bullied the Opera House and then the Premier Gladys Berejiklian at the time to advertise a horse race that he was involved in on on the sale of the Opera House, which was uh, totally against the requirements of the UNESCO, of the Opera House's con, um, agreement that makes it a World Heritage Site totally in, in, in conflict with all of the uh, acceptable use policies of, of the Opera House to do anything commercial like that. But the Prime Minister had said, no, no, it's the, it's the, it's the biggest billboard in Sydney. Why would you not use it for the biggest horse race in Sydney? <laughs> I, was, I was outraged by this. And I said, well, you know, Sydney Opera House, I would like to, I would like to advertise Kids Off Nauru on the Opera House. Why not? Since it's the biggest billboard in the country. And it... The, the tweet was just a cheeky tweet I wrote without any, without much thought at all. I, I put my phone in my pocket and yeah, didn't didn't look at it for a few hours. I came back and it had gone viral like nothing I'd ever wow. done before. You know, ten times bigger than anything I'd ever done. And I got a call from someone from the Kids Off Nauru campaign, and I remember the first thing he said was, "Welcome to the campaign." <laughs> it's like well, you're in it now. <laughs> you're in it now. You're part of it. And and they and, and very quickly they convinced me this is a fundraising opportunity. This doesn't come around very often. Let's make this happen. Let's project kids off Nauru onto the Opera House. We can raise the money. We thought it would cost fifty grand. We later found it would it would have cost more than a hundred grand to 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 set it all up. But I started a fundraising campaign. Within three days, had one hundred and seventeen thousand dollars for 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 this kids off Nauru um campaign especially that highlighted on the opera house and i was once again in this position of having holding sitting on a whole bunch of other people's money that i was the custodian for and i remember the the weight of that feeling it's like crap i've just i've done it again here i am with other people's hopes and dreams pinned on to you know, onto on me on something that I thought was cool, but now I've actually got to follow through and do it. We, the Opera House was very firm in saying we couldn't, we couldn't do that, but we did a whole lot of really fun things with, with the money and kept the donors up to date. We um, rented uh, mobile billboard trucks and parked them out the front of the Opera House with kids off Nauru. So we did get the photo <laughs> and, and then, and, and billboards all around Sydney helped bus people to events in, in Canberra, mobile billboards all around Parliament House when they were debating the issues, ads in the Australian, murals on a wall in Melbourne, which yeah, did a lot of a lot of stunts with with other people's money that we had raised and my own, but did did stunts with that. But I again again I said that's where I learned how social media could be used for good mm. and how I could use the profile that I'd built up there for my energy musings. For, for social good. And in that Kids Off Nauru campaign, I saw, I, I met a few of the crossbenchers, the independents at that stage for the first time. And I was invited up to Parliament House to, uh, on the day that the Medivac bill was passed by at, at the independence inst instigation. The Medivac bill 
against the government of the day's wishes, the Morrison government's wishes, they moved that they managed to push an amendment through both houses of parliament that would allow anyone who was critically ill on Nauru to come to Australia for medical attention. Bizarrely, they uh, it, there wasn't an automatic right to medical attention for critically ill people until that point. The government fought against it, but they actually lost the bill on the floor of the house because the independents had had the numbers and were and it was the first time the government had lost on, on their own bill in in the, the the house the lower house in ninety years. It was quite a stunning wow. stunning event. But I saw how clever these independents were and how how they had a different way of engaging with the community and of different um, tool, tool set and different set of integrity. Really, you're very, very, it had been in the periphery of my understanding what Cathy McGowan had done with her community independence campaign started back in 2012 or so. And I had been become increasingly frustrated with um, uh, with the government of the day, that they were they were walking away. They'd broken the bipartisanship on renewable energy. They had no credible climate policy, and in fact, they'd been fighting against both of those. Uh, and I realised that there was a real opportunity for change in Australia through the power of the crossbench. Uh, I, I had a I had a crack at the twenty nineteen election of raising a bunch of money to support independent candidates. We did that. It was pretty small in comparison to what we did in 2022, raised half a million dollars from about 30 people in for that that election. We did some good, but it was a pretty amateur effort uh, on my behalf. Pretty, we, we left it way too late. We only started Climate 200 six weeks before the 2019 election. But it gave me a real, ta- you know, it gave me a very rapid understanding of how, of how politics works in Australia, how elections work and set the foundations for what was to come next. Incredible. You spoke earlier about being an introvert, but I could hear you share this story for hours. So thank you for, thank you for being candid about, about your reflections on this. I don't think one of the takeaways, Simon, I have hearing that is, and I asked Beck Milgram this on, on the show, I think you listened to that, is how do you present information in a way that makes people engaged and willing to listen and not switch off? Because I think that's a through line in that story is that mobilizing capital for good requires people to support you and, and you've got to go out there and fundraise and advocate and I'm sure there's been some rejections along the way. Have you have you I'm sure you've learned many things about human DNA and how to convince people to open their ears and close their mouths and support? Mm. I do I do put a lot of effort into into clarity of communication and i think that i mean that that does that does go back to that training you do, i talked before about the influence of of the apple design philosophy if you if you write software for 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 macintosh you you have to learn about the user interface guidelines and the and real the really distilling uh, what what the interaction you have with a user down to uh, something that causes the least cognitive load on on your on the person you're communicating with or, the, or your user in, in the computer's case. I'm very inspired also by Edward Tufte, who some some anyone who's into graphic communication or, or uh, communication of, of 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 data. If they don't know Edward Tufte, they, they go and buy go and buy all his books and, and mm. binge read them. But yeah, no, I, I'm that, that's part of the reason I really liked Twitter when I first got on. I'm, I'm falling rapidly falling uh, out of love with the, with the platform as we speak. But mm. one of the things I really liked about it was that it forced you to be really crisp. In your communication, you know, to, it was only 140. Was, was it yeah, 140 characters at that point? It's now, mm. well, it's now unlimited, right? Or oh, nearly, mm. practically. But but to to have to distill what you're trying to say down into a very small amount of text and a very 
you know, and maybe maybe an, an infographic that you make yourself. I I I really like that discipline and a really good training for me of how to communicate complex concepts. Yeah, so that through the yeah, the, the energy comms through. Uh, even you know program, programming for, for for Mac, those those things have really influenced my my thoughts on effective communication and a lot of effort into it. If I, if I put a tactical question around that, like something I do before I meet someone is I try and learn about them and go in with some conversational points. I'm curious, and I'm an introvert as well, similar to you, and I, I struggle with the who. What are we are doing on a podcast? <laughs> Is I'm just curious because I think you're very good at this. Is building connection with different stakeholders in different parts of community, right? Someone in Dalesford is very different to someone sitting in Parliament House in in Canberra in terms of their view of the world. Do you prepare? Like, do you try and research about their interviews, or articles, and you'll be up at night on your iPad or something learning, and then you'll go into the meeting or conversation with some talking points i'm just i'm just curious tactically it's a very nerdy question but how do you break the ice um uh, well i'm look i wouldn't i i I read a lot i people say how do you relax i you know i I research (laughs) what are your hobbies i research what do you do on the weekend yeah i research so i i i i like I, I do like podcasts, so I listen to a, a, a wide variety. No, <laughs> when I say wide variety, a wide variety within my interest space, which is which is energy and politics, and and I read a lot within that interest space as as well. So I, I generally have a reasonable amount of 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 knowledge of the topic. But I, I, yes, as I, I love understanding how things work. Yeah, when I, I also love travelling, and almost every time I, I travel, I try to fit in some some infrastructure, whether it's a geothermal power plant or, mm. um, yeah, if, if 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 we go near a cable car, I want to see the engine room. Or if we go to a hydro <laughs> dam, I try to get the behind the scenes tour of how, you know, to go see the turbines and and how they actually work. So. I really, I, I really like understanding how things work and go out of my way to track down the, the experts. Yeah. Mm. One of the questions that came back from your team was, ask Simon if he could be in a Hall of Fame room with five other people who, and I'm putting you on the spot here, who would be those five people you'd love to be in a room with? Could be from any walk of life, anywhere in the world, ideally living so you can actually see them and talk to them. Are there any that come to mind? Wow, you've put me on a on, on a spot there. But I would I would like yeah, Buckminster Fuller. Um, Thomas Edison, <laughs> um, Edward Tufty. Um, Is there a politician in that in that list, Simon? That that you you are really impressed by that you'd love to meet. <laughs> Hmm. Good. Good question. Uh, I think I'd be quite interested to spend some with, with uh, Angela Merkel. Went through a very interesting time in 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 Germany, and yeah, didn't get everything right, but got you know got, made some made some big decisions. Yeah, but you've really got me on the on the spot for. For the for the remainder, no, you, you've um, given me four names. The fifth, fifth is yourself. The fifth is yourself. You've got to okay, there in we that go. Room. So you've got five. You've done it. Good job. And 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 I think the last one on that, and then we'll cl- we'll move to last question on climate, and then close with rapid fire. Is the other question that came back from your team is give Simon the floor and ask him what are some of the myths that people have about you and your projects, and and do you want to demystify them? So the floor is yours. Oh, one thing I find I find amusing is. Well, so with 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 Climate Two Hundred, we obviously the the Liberal Party felt very threatened by it, and so they were constantly creating misinformation, as was as was News Corp. So we had sort of half the media trying to muddy the waters at all times. You know, active campaign from both of them. So sort of 
um, largely amused because they, I think in general, they didn't really land a blow. But but one of the misconceptions is that Climate Two Hundred is is all about is is all about me. At, 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 you know, in, in the final wash up, I, I was my wife and I were about two and a half percent of the capital raised by by Climate Two Hundred. So. No, it's not all our money. It's it's from eleven thousand five hundred people, people from every electorate in the country, and yeah, so rural and regional. It's not just not just quote the teals. We supported twenty three candidates around the country, and a lot of people in a lot of candidates in regional areas did really really well. But there's no there's no silver medal in politics. There are a bunch of fantastic candidates who came second that aren't household names, but if they got a few more votes, they would be. I'm, I'm yeah, really interested in what happens next in, in, in those communities. Another thing, the, yeah, the News Corp media likes to paint that I'm, I'm doing this because somehow I'll make lots of money out of it and I'm, I'm yet to see how that, how that works. I, I, yeah, I do have investments in renewables, but the vast majority are not in Australia. Australia hasn't been a great place to invest in, in renewables. In, in my, my investments in in Australia are actually pretty boring and look like most people's super, you know, dom- dominated by uh, you know by financial institutions. What I, and, and 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 mining and industrials. What I have done though is divested from from fossil fuels. Yeah, they're they're not in my portfolio. But there's really not. There hasn't been a lot of opportunity for 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 strong and strategic investments in, in renewables in, a, in mm. Australia. Um, I th- I'm hoping that that, that, that that will change. But I tell you, there's, there's, a, there's a lot easier ways to make money than, than, <laughs> than the time I've put into Climate 200, which, yeah, is, is really a, a passion and, and, and it's been an, an absolute honour to have, have that opportunity of, of, of what you know, our, our significant community has achieved. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, kudos to you for for driving that uh, driving that change and, and and back on her conversation also spoke about it how it was it went against it questioned a lot of things but they put their name on the line and and, and supported it so kudos to you I want to move into rapid fire final sprint to close us out is there one non work investment you've made that you consider the best in your life well the easy answer that everyone I think gives is family. family. But that, yeah, that is an absolute pleasure. I think the more you go through life, you realise that it's the it's it's relationships that that matter to you, and the and good quality, strong relationships with with your family are absolutely absolutely precious. But maybe it's too easy just to to say family. Yeah, I think the the investment of of the time, and then later some capital into the community independence movement has has been the most rewarding thing i've done outside you know outside my personal life mm. is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months when I mean, you mentioned researching uh, so i'm sure you've got a list of things you want to research yeah it's, if you'd asked me this a month ago i wanted to learn i wanted to learn python the ah, the, the yeah, language the coding, I've, I've, yeah, yeah. yeah coding i i you know have done about half a dozen um computer languages I, I wanted to learn python and my son said you know you can just get chat gpt to teach mm. it to you you just tell it what you want to do and it, and it will help you a lot with the code and so just over the last few weeks i did learn to code in 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 python and did wow. a, did a whole bunch of work that i was considering contracting someone to do in in incredibly rapid time and as a, i studied ai at, at when I, when i was at, at uni in the states and I had come out thinking that I was not going to happen in any significant form in our lifetimes. And I'm just absolutely blown away by how it can be used as a teaching tool. So I've, I've done the thing, I've recently done the thing I was planning to do over the next, over the next six months. I'm, you know, as, we, as we're coming up towards at the end of the year, I'm, um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading some things printed on paper rather than just <laughs> reports on screen and so lear- i guess learning learning how to have the the focus and clear space to to just get back to reading a bit more broadly and reading for a bit of 
uh, yeah, outside of the areas of you know, energy and politics that I've been spending so much time on in recent years. So, mm. yeah, le- le- learning to create the space. Mm. I think we, I think we all are trying to on that quest to <laughs> slow down. <laughs> and maybe last one because I'm conscious I've asked you a lot of questions. Is is there one person or quote that inspires you? And you can paraphrase the quote. Yeah, I'll, I'll add if I can add one more people to one more person to that that hall of fame. It's it's Lawrence Lessig, the law professor. He was at Stanford, now at Harvard. Hero who I did get to meet. I did, did get to meet, and they, they always say, "Don't meet your heroes." Mm. I met one of my heroes, and it, it was absolutely not a letdown. He was a significant inspiration for me for for Climate Two Hundred. There's, there's a thousand profound things that he said, but he he introduced me to the Henry David Thoreau quote, and it, go, it goes like this: "There are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root." He he encourages us all to be root strikers, and I guess there's a parallel with the Buckminster Fuller trim tab comp- concept mm-hmm. that really try to find what is what is the What's the root of the problem? Not just hack at the leaves, which are going to regrow, but what's the root problem that we need to fix? And and you know, try to be be the one or be one of the those who who strike at the root. And that's you know I think I think those uh, those who who back climate two hundred are all root strikers, and yeah, root strikers along with me. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, play the play the long game as well. I think as part of that, right? Which I think is one of something you you spoken about in one of your previous interviews. But that brings us to a close, and this is a good way to celebrate episode one fifty, which I didn't which I didn't tell you. But thank you for joining me for oh, this wow. episode one fifty. <laughs> Huge of amount of work on your behalf. Mm, yeah, I, I wanted to find someone who was unique and someone who doesn't do interviews, and and I'm glad you agreed to this. So thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. Well, there you have it. That's my conversation with Simon Holmes Accord in this special episode 150. Simon rarely does public interviews and this, I believe, is his first about his own story. So I'm very grateful he trusted me to host this one. A number of things in this conversation stood out for me, but there's two things in particular. It's the concept of the trim tab and being a root striker. And you can drive change at a large scale from a small place. I hope you enjoyed this special episode 150 and thank you for your support over the years. These 150 episodes and everything else that's happened with the podcast, with the events, with our newsletter, with Curiosity Center, with our community, with investing has been the most impactful and enjoyable work I've done in my life. And I'm really excited for what's ahead. And as always, let me know your thoughts on the conversation. All my details are in the show notes, so reach out anytime. And I'll catch you very soon.